Hey guys, it's Melissa here from MelissaOatman.com. Welcome to Awaken Your Inner Awesomeness, a daily podcast devoted to spirituality and self-help. If you're new, I want to welcome you. If you're returning, welcome back. So I'm very excited today. I have a very special guest with us. Today I have Sensei Alex Kakuyo. He is a Buddhist teacher and a breathwork facilitator, a former Marine where he served in both Iraq and Afghanistan before finding Dharma through a series of happy accidents. Sensei Alex holds a BA in philosophy from Wabash College and his life work is helping students bridge the gap between the finite and the infinite using movement, meditation, and gratitude practices. He helps them to find inner peace in every moment. And not only does he do all of that, but Sensei Alex is also the author of Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life. So I am super excited to have you here today, Sensei Alex. Thank you for joining us. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks so much. Now, I know that some of our listeners might not be too familiar with Buddhism or the tenets of Buddhism or the principles. Um, so if you could just tell us a little bit about that and also just a little bit about yourself, that would be amazing. Sure, absolutely. So just going back to the beginning, 2,600 years ago, a man by the name of Siddhartha Gautama was born in India. And in India at that time, the uh, ritual or the tradition was that an oracle would be there at the birth of a child. And they would say, amongst other things, how quickly they expected the child to die and also what type of life they expected the child to live based on the stars. So they were astrologers and soothsayers. And the oracle stated that Buddha would either be a holy man or he would be a world-turning monarch. Now, his father was a monarch. He was a king of the Shakya tribe, and he wanted his son to go into the family business. So he did everything he could to encourage Buddha in that direction um, by essentially providing him with every material or sensual pleasure you can imagine and also isolating him from any sort of suffering that might exist. So uh, young Buddha was not allowed to leave the palace compound, but within the palace, he had access to the best tutors. He was very well educated. He was also very good at athletics. Uh, the sutras say he was an archer and an expert uh, horse rider. Uh, he, had, he was surrounded by the most beautiful concubines in the kingdom, really just a, a very hedonistic, materialistic lifestyle. And he lived this life um, well into his 30s, and he frankly found it to be lacking. It wasn't fulfilling. He didn't know why. But for some reason, there was a hole in his heart that wasn't being filled. So at one point, out of desperation, he chooses to leave the palace, give up his kingdom, and go on a spiritual quest uh, in order to find fulfillment and realize enlightenment. And he did a series of practices. We're not told exactly what he did, but at the end, we're told that he was an ascetic meaning that he didn't bathe, he didn't wear clothes, he slept outdoors, and he also wasn't eating. In fact, at the end, he was only eating one grain of rice a day, 
And the stories say that he got so thin that he could poke his belly button and feel his spine. So obviously very unhealthy. And eventually he passed out from hunger in a river. And he was saved by a, a milkmaid, a young girl named Sujata, who pulled him from the river and fed him and helped him regain his strength. So after the end of the six-year ordeal, Buddha realized that he wasn't any happier or any closer to enlightenment until self-actualization or fulfillment than he had been in the palace. Okay, so he's tried two extremes at this point. He's been a hedonist and he's been an ascetic and neither have worked. So again, out of desperation, he sits down under the Bodhi tree and he says, I will not move from this spot, even if the muscles melt from my bones until I have found a way to end all sorrow. So he sat there without moving in meditation for 49 days. At the end of the 49 days, right when he was on the brink of awakening, Mara, who was the god of lies, uh, appeared to him and he began to tempt the Buddha because he knew he was onto something. He didn't want him to get there, however. So he tempted him first with riches. If you give up your quest for enlightenment, I will give you all the lands of the world, mountains and mountains of treasure. The Buddha says no. Then uh, he tempts him again, this time with sexuality. He has his daughters dance in front of him and say, I will give you the most beautiful women in the world, every sensual pleasure imaginable, if you will give up your quest for enlightenment. Again, the Buddha says no. And finally, Mara has an army appear behind him. And he states, this whole army speaks for me and says, I am who I am. Who speaks for you? What gives you the right to be the enlightened one? And the Buddha, very interestingly, he doesn't go into a long philosophical treatise at this point. Instead, he reaches down and he touches the earth. And he says, the earth bears witness. And at this point, there's a great earthquake. Mara and all of his demons fall into the earth. Uh, a star appears in the sky. And then Buddha realizes enlightenment. He has his awakening. So at this point, he has to figure out what to do, right? So he just hangs out there under the tree and enjoys this kind of blissful inner peace. And then eventually the god Brahma comes down and says, you can't just stay here. You have to share what you've learned. The people need this wisdom. So Buddha goes out into the world and the people are so taken aback by his appearance that they try to figure out who and what he is. So at first they ask, are you a god? He says, no. They say, are you a man? He says, no. So out of frustration, they just go, well, what are you? And then he replies by stating, I am Tathagata. And Tathagata is an interesting word. It's a Pali and a Sanskrit word that has two meanings. It means he who has come and he who has gone away. So the implication is Buddha is a man still. He has a physical form, 
but he has transcended the normal understanding of humanity. Uh, imagine someone who was able to simultaneously stand on top of a mountain and see the big picture and at the same time live in the forest and have that phenomenal understanding of the world. So that's the Buddha. I love that description. That's an awesome way to look at it like that. And some people would say ascended master, but same, mm -hmm. same principle that standing on top of the mountain, you can see the big picture while also living in the forest. I love that. Give me chills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good visual. I think it, it describes really what we're hoping for in spirituality. Yes. And what, oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, and so um, how exactly did you find Buddhism and how did that affect your life? Sure, absolutely. So I had an experience. So I grew up in the evangelical Christian church. Uh, my family's Pentecostal. So for those of who are unfamiliar, it's a very charismatic tradition. So you speak in tongues. You faint. I talked about it many times because I grew up in the same tradition. Oh, so you know all about it. <laughs> yes, yes, and my listeners have heard about it from time to time. Yes, but go ahead, continue. <laughs> okay, okay. So I'll give you the short version then. A very traditional household. Uh, we weren't allowed to read the Harry Potter books. We couldn't use the pinball machine at the arcade because you know if you get a, if you win, you get another ball, and that's gambling. If you gamble, you go to hell. So very strict, very traditional upbringing. And what I got out of this was a really strange obsession on trying to be good. Because I felt that being good equaled being worthy. Mm -hmm. right? And this actually served me quite well to a certain degree. I attained a lot of material success as a result because I always wanted to be the best at everything. So went to school, got good grades, went to college, joined the Marines successful there, uh, got a job in corporate America, climbed the ladder. And in the back of my head, I always had this feeling that I was just one more promotion, one more raise, one more purchase away from, you know, self-actualization, from, you know, feeling worthy. And it just wasn't happening. And eventually I got to a point where I just ran out of things to do. Like I just had no idea what else could I possibly attain that will give me this feeling I'm looking for, this feeling of just being okay. And I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but what I like about Buddhism is that there's less of a focus on being good. And it taught me that I could just be. And that was enough, which was lovely. So I started reading these books on Buddhism and it all made a lot of sense to me but I wasn't exactly sure that I could both practice Buddhism and have my normal everyday life at the same time. Mm -hmm. So how do I practice spirituality and pay the bills? So eventually what I did was I gave away all of my possessions and I went on my own spiritual quest. Uh, I spent eight months in retreat where I was working on organic farms and living there. And I was meditating anywhere from four to six hours a day. So. Wow. Yeah. A typical day, I'd wake up, I'd do two hours of meditation, I'd go out, you know, do my work on the farm, whether that was building a tiny house, working in the orchard, tending the animals, etc. Then in the evening, I'd do another two to three hours, followed by sutra study. 
And that was terrific, but I found in the same way that the Buddha found that suffering isn't something that we can just run away from. Um, I suffered in the corporate America when people are screaming at each other over the conference call, but I also suffered on the farm when it's 95 degrees outside and I'm being bitten by horse flies and I'm yeah. 50 pound hay bales around. <laughs> it's just a different kind of suffering. <laughs> exactly. It's a different kind of suffering. So that's when I realized that instead of trying to use my spirituality to escape suffering, what I really needed to do was learn how to use my suffering and turn that into a vehicle for awakening. Um, so that's really been my focus since that time. Now that you know, I'm no longer working on a farm, uh, is just and what I do with students as well is just helping them take whatever suffering is in their life, whether it's traffic jams, work, family drama, etc. How can we take that, change our understanding? so that now, like the Buddha, we can realize our own enlightenment. I love that. And I love a couple of things that you said. I love that you said when you were looking for fulfillment, you were looking constantly at how to be good and to please others and to be worthy. And I think so many of my listeners, we're all reformed people pleasers, or some of us still are, and we're working on that. So that's one of the big lessons that a lot of people who listen to my podcast that's one of the struggles for them is just to be just how do I just be myself and not have to worry about being good, being worthy, pleasing everyone else and except for myself. So that's one of the things that stood out that you said just a little bit ago. And the other thing um, that you talked about too, is the suffering and how that that triggers enlightenment mm -hmm. because so many of my listeners too are in the process of spiritual transformation. Sure. And they're going through the suffering part now. We like to call it the dark night of the soul, mm -hmm. where all of the stuff just starts coming up to be healed and to be worked on. Um, but it's, to me, dark night of the soul is one of the stages on the path to enlightenment sure. and spiritual awakening. So if you, how do you work with students when they come to you seeking enlightenment? What are some of the things you might do? Oh, well, well, that's a good question. So the first thing I do is try to get them to understand that they're already enlightened. So this isn't something that I'm giving them or that they need to work to attain. It's something that they need to just remember they already have. So going back to that word, Tathagata, what's interesting is Buddha used it first to refer to himself, but then later on in the Lotus Sutra, he uses it to refer to the entire universe. So what happens there is that now we have Buddha the man and Buddha the universe essentially being one thing, right? So man is one with the universe, the universe is enlightened, therefore we are enlightened, right? Yes. So helping them to understand that interconnection between them and the universe or their higher power. Uh, we use Tathagata in Buddhism, but some people call it source, the universe, etc. So I help them to understand that. And that can be very, that in itself can be very helpful because like you said, so many people are told they are unworthy, that, that that message that we receive in Buddhism that we're already worthy, that there's really nothing else for us to do can be very, it, it takes away off of people's shoulders. So I start there. And then I also help 
to help them change their mindset around suffering. So I always tell the story of when I was working on the farm and I was working on, on a farm in upstate New York and they were raising chickens. And part of my job was to clean the chicken coop, which is a, a, a really terrible job. <laughs> I can imagine, doesn't that sound fun? <laughs> which is uh, why I, the apprentice had to do it. But you know, you go in there and there's a lot of ammonia and stuff in the air from the waste. There's lots of hay that's been compacted on the ground. So you're taking a pitchfork, you're taking the hay, putting it in a wheelbarrow, putting out new hay for the chickens. So that's you carrying these huge hay bales around. And then you take the old hay and you put it in a compost pile. Now the important thing about this compost pile is that if you work with it well, you know, you keep it damp but not wet, you rotate it every couple of weeks, it turns into very fertile soil. And then you can use that soil. What we did, we had an orchard, so we were growing blueberries, strawberries, um, cherry trees, etc. But you can't have the fruit trees unless you have the compost, and you can't have the compost unless you have the chicken manure. So this is an important lesson because in the West, we're taught that we need to escape suffering. That you know, if we're doing things right, we shouldn't suffer. That every moment of life should be mind-blowingly ecstatic is the message we're giving. And that's a very poisonous message because if we look at our daily life, most of it's not that exciting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most of it's doing laundry, it's washing dishes, it's caring for plants, feeding animals, driving to work. So if we have this idea that all of these normal everyday activities are not what we're supposed to be doing, that they're taking away from our spiritual practice, that there's something we need to get away from, we're, we're gonna be very unhappy because we have to do these things. But if we can change our mindset so that that car ride, instead of just being the thing I do to go to work, well, this is the compost that helps me grow my fruit trees, my spiritual fruit trees. Now everything changes. Now we're, now we're grateful oh, I get to wash the dishes, I get to sweep the floor. All right, let's, let's do this, let's wake up. So really changing that mindset around daily life and daily activities and also around suffering. So what we do is really just look at, well, what's the suffering in your life? And then how can we turn that into a spiritual lesson? Whether we're learning patience, whether we're practicing gratitude. Um, so really looking at that and learning to be creative with our own daily practices. And then finally, I really work with them in terms of gratitude practice. So there's a practice that I'm very fond of that I speak about in the book called Nikon, uh, N-A-I-K-A-N. And what it is, it's a very simple mindfulness practice. You can do that anytime, but uh, starting off, I generally have them do it in the evening and just keep a journal and think of five things that other people did for you that day that helped you. Five things you did for other people where you helped them. And then one thing, because this isn't our chance to beat up on ourselves. So just one thing where, okay, how can I do this a little bit better tomorrow? And the reason we do that is that we as human beings have what's called a negativity bias where we automatically focus on the negatives in our lives, mm -hmm. which I'm sure served us well in the past when wild animals are trying to eat us, but yeah. now not so much, right? So we right. have to re 
we have to retrain our minds to look for the good and the positive things in life. Um, and, and this is how we do that, simply retraining ourselves to look for things that we can be grateful for, things that were positive that happened. And this can be as big as I rescue a puppy from a burning building, or as simple as I smiled at the cashier, or I gave the pizza guy a nice tip, or my boss gave me a good review, whatever. But as we get into that habit of looking for those opportunities for gratitude, then our, our, again, our minds change and our view of the world changes. And instead of seeing all the negativity and all the suffering that we're trying to escape from, now we see the good in it. So we go to wash the dishes and instead of saying, man, there's a ton of dishes, I, I don't wanna do this, we think, wow, that was a really nice meal I just had. This is fantastic. Or you know, if we have a dishwasher, it used to take me forever to wash dishes. Now I just throw them in the dishwasher. So again, just, just changing our mindset from one of, of agony, for lack of a better word, to one of gratitude is another thing I work with students on, and it seems to be very helpful. Yeah, I love that. We talk about that all the time on this podcast, um, the importance of gratitude and even keeping a gratitude journal. And, um, and interesting that you said that the brain has a negativity bias. That's true. And I talk about that on my podcast all the time, too. We do tend to focus on the negative. Mm -hmm. And I, again, at one point, that kept us safe. But I love that you help them to see the good and even mundane chores because it's true. You know, when you have to vacuum and you don't like to vacuum, you can say, at least I have a floor to vacuum. I have a home I have a roof over my head. Yeah, I love that. I think that's awesome. We need to be doing more of that, especially I think now there's so many people who are allowing fear and doubt to creep in because of the pandemic and what's going on and not really being sure of what's going to happen. And a lot of people being forced to quarantine are not dealing well with it. <laughs> but I think it's a great opportunity to really take advantage of the time to rest and focus on your meditation practices, on all of those things we do that help us to become better versions of ourselves. What advice would you give someone who is maybe having a difficult time in quarantine? Sure. Well, uh, the first thing would definitely be the gratitude practice because, so the first noble truth of Buddhism tells us that life is suffering, uh, which is a very dramatic statement. Uh, so I'll unpack that. It essentially just means that bad things happen and that's okay. We're not being punished, nothing's wrong, no one's out to get us, this is just a natural part of life. Uh, in the same way that a weatherman might, be, might say it's cold with two feet of snow on the ground outside. It's just a statement of fact. So then our job then is to take that information and work with it skillfully. So if there's snow outside, but we wear our heavy boots and our coat and our hat, we can actually have fun in the snow. The snow didn't change, but we changed. Right. And with when we say life is suffering, that just kind of resets our mindset. Because if we have this mentality that nothing should ever go wrong, when things do go wrong, we think, you know, what did I do to deserve this? Right? Or I don't deserve this. Other people are attacking me. But if we reframe that to suffering is normal, 
life is suffering, it's a natural part of life, then two things happen. One, we're a lot more appreciative and grateful when life isn't suffering. Like we were saying, vacuuming the floor, well, I have a floor to vacuum, right? The other thing is we're a lot better prepared when things go wrong, which is what's happening here with the pandemic. And so that would be the first advice I would give is really take the time to focus on the things that you have that you can be grateful for. Uh, I have food that I can eat. Uh, I, I'm healthy in the midst of this pandemic. Um, you know, just really working to find the things that you can be grateful for. And then also find a way to use this time while we're having to quarantine, while we're having to be by ourselves. Find a project that you can devote yourself to. Um, and it doesn't have to be anything big, but the thing we have to remember is if we are the universe, then everything we do affects the universe. Uh, in Buddhism, we, we use the word karma to talk about this cause and effect, right? So if we're taking care of ourselves, then we're taking care of the universe and vice versa. So anything you can do to make your life a little bit better helps everyone around you. I always use the example of taking care of your front yard, right? If, I, if you take care of your front yard, that very naturally makes the neighborhood look better, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Yeah. So with this pandemic, it's very easy for us to feel powerless, to feel like there's nothing we can do. But if we really just shrink our focus to just our little corner of the world and find a, a project that we can work on, whether it's our own self-work, maybe we spend more time reading books on spirituality, meditating, chanting, etc. Maybe we focus on our families. And you know, now that we're all we're stuck together, <laughs> how can we make the most of this time and really get to know each other? Whether it's reading books, whether it's writing, if we just find a healthy life affirming project and really focus in on that and devote our time to that. It's good for us, obviously, because it helps to end our suffering. It takes our mind off of things, but it also has ripple effects for the rest of the world as well. So even though we can't necessarily do something about the pandemic directly, we can do something indirectly. And that's a way to take our power back. I love that. And as you mentioned, you know, now is a great time to work on yourself and to find books to read to help. And speaking of books, <laughs> I happen to know that you wrote one. So if you're interested in new reading, which I always am when I have extra downtime, I like to pick a new book to read. So we, um, you have your new book, Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life. So can you tell us just a little bit about your book? Sure, absolutely. So what I do in this book is I take the core tenets of Buddhist practice, the Four Noble Truths, which state life is suffering, suffering is caused by desire, the way to end suffering is to end desire, the way to end desire is the Noble Eightfold Path, and then the Noble Eightfold Path, which is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I take these core tenets of Buddhism and I explain them to people in very simple, very easy to understand language. And the way I do that is using life experiences that, that I've had. So for example, I talk about how working on a waste oil furnace 
on a farm in Indiana. What did that teach me about right livelihood? Um, my experience in recruit training in the US Marines, what did that teach me about suffering? Uh, my experience of going, practicing in a Zen Buddhist temple and doing a retreat, what did that teach me about right mindfulness? So my goal with each essay, it's a series of essays, is to both explain the teaching in a theological way. So anyone who wants a really deep understanding of Buddhist training will get that but then also explain the practical application as well. So it's not all just theoretical, it's also how do you actually use this? And it's written in such a way that if someone is wanting to go deeper into Buddhist practice and do it and learn that and train in that, this, they can read this book and they'll pretty much know the basics. They can go to any temple, any meditation center, and they'll know what's going on. But also, if someone is just interested in spirituality in general, and they're looking for tips, techniques that they can use to help them in their own personal practice, whatever that might be, this will be helpful for those people as well. Uh, because each essay has a slightly different focus. So there's someone, something there for anyone who's looking for spiritual training. I love that. I think that so many of my listeners are very spiritual thinkers and spiritual seekers, and they're always looking for information and new ideas. So I think that this would be a great book for people to get just to even dive farther into what is this and, and how can this help me in my everyday life. So I love that you have done that and, and that you wrote that. Um, a lot of people just write a book and it's here are the principles, but they don't necessarily show you how to apply it in your everyday life. So the fact that you've included both, I think is awesome. So I definitely think that you should go out and check out his book, Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life. And I will have a link in the description to this podcast where you can purchase the book. So if you're interested in that, check out the description. Now, if people want to contact you or to follow you how can they get a hold of you absolutely so there there are a couple ways uh i try in, as part of my ministry i try to make the teachings available as widely as possible so i'm on a number of different social media platforms the first way they can get a hold of me was just through my website the same old zen uh, the url for that is the same old zen.com exa exactly like it sounds and what I do there primarily is I post articles on Buddhism and those articles are in the same vein as the book of Buddhism in everyday life and how that can help you and what's the practical application. And since, ah, sorry, I can't talk today. Since the articles are written from my own personal journey, you get to kind of see what I'm going through and how the teaching helped me deal with this situation or that situation. Um, the cat ate my house plants. How, how did Buddhism help me cope with that? That sort of thing. Nice. Yeah, I like that. And then I also have my YouTube channel, uh, which they can just search Sensei Alex Kakuyo. I'll, I'll come up. I'm the only one. But what I do there is I teach more from a theological approach. So that's more of a traditional, this is, I, maybe I'll do a reading from a sutra and then I'll do a commentary or I'll do a distinct explanation of one of the tenets of the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path. I'm actually right now doing a three-part series on the Noble Eightfold Path. So 
it's a good time to jump in if they want to learn uh, that way. Those would be the two primary ways. Awesome. And I will have those links also in the description to the podcast. So if any of you are interested, which I'm going to have to go head over to your website to check that out, um, because I love that you're using your own personal stories to teach people. I personally, as a teacher, I think that that is the best way to really make something meaningful to someone is to really show them if you can, you know, tell people all day long, but it's when you show people not do as I say, but do as I do, when we actually show people how we're using, you know, what we're learning and make it meaningful for them. I think that that is so much more effective. So I love that you're doing that. I'll have to check that out. And you guys can check that out too. I'm going to have the links to his book, the website, YouTube channel, and to Twitter and Instagram, your other social media accounts in the description to the podcast. So if you guys are interested in following Sensei Alex, absolutely take a look at all of the links in the description to the podcast. I want to thank you so much for being here with me today. Are there any last words or anything else, any other wisdom you would like to impart to my audience before we go for today? Uh, I, I would just like to let everyone know first, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you, Melissa, for having me. Uh, it was very Absolutely. kind of you. <laughs> and everyone is always wondering, what am I doing as a Buddhist teacher during this pandemic? How am I coping with the coronavirus? And very simply, I am praying for all of you. Uh, each night, I, I bow in front of my altar. Buddha and I have a chat, and I keep all of you in my prayers. So. If, if you're struggling, just know that you are in my thoughts. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here with me. Um, this was an amazing chat, and I can't wait to read your book. So I hope others out there also will go and check that out. I want to thank you guys, all of you, for being here with me today. As always, if you like this podcast, please subscribe. Please leave feedback from wherever you're listening and please share it with others. That helps others to find me, which helps me on my mission to heal as many people as possible. Also, if you would like to follow me, don't forget to follow me on my social media. I go live Mondays at 630 Central on Facebook where I do a free card reading. And I also post videos to Instagram and IGTV. If you'd like to work with me, you can go to my website, melissaoatman.com. There you will find all of the services I offer as well as uh, you can purchase them and there's a description of what they are. And my book, Beautifully Broken, is also available. You can purchase the new audiobook version on my website. So go check that out. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you again, Sensei Alex, for being here with me. Thank you so much. Yes. I hope that you all have a beautiful day. I am sending you so much love and light and I will talk to you again soon. Bye, guys.